Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Christ the Teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice, calling us to cast down deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, welcome to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Father Randy Sly, your host. And today, we will be talking with Jimmy Mitchell, the uh, Director of Campus Ministry at Jesuit High School in Tampa, Florida. Uh, Jimmy grew up in a Catholic family in the Atlanta area. An accomplished student, he was accepted to Vanderbilt University and studied human organizational development. And in time, he felt pulled away from a career in business and gravitated toward what really set him on fire, and that was his faith. Upon graduating from college, uh, Jimmy immersed himself in all kinds of ministries, kind of an amalgamation of roles that he best described as being part missionary, part motivational speaker. And uh, later, he established Love Good Ministries, which we'll talk to him about in a few minutes. And after about 12 years of traveling the world as a Catholic speaker and missionary, he found a home at Jesuit High School in Tampa, where he aims to awaken a burning love of Christ in the hearts of young men and women. In addition to his bachelor's degree from Vanderbilt, he has a master's in moral theology from Holy Apostles College and Seminary. And uh, many uh, that know Jimmy... uh, Remember him for his gifts of storytelling and, I guess, playing piano. But I don't see a piano in your background, Jimmy, so I doubt that we'll have a concert as a part of the of the program today. Uh, but he used those in his uh, ministry travel. So, Jimmy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Father Randy. I tell you, I think I need to bring you on the road next time I'm traveling so you can be the official introduction everywhere I go. That was great. Oh, <laughs> uh, thanks much. Hey, you know, uh, we're really glad that you're with us today. And uh, uh, we always like to begin the program by giving our guests an opportunity to tell us a little bit about themselves. So could you tell us about your upbringing? Absolutely. You mentioned it. I grew up in Atlanta, which is a big city, a sprawling city. I got there, you know, in time to be born for about a year. We we lived in Atlanta before we started moving around a ton and then got back to Atlanta in time for the Olympics in 1996 and was there for the next six years before eventually going off to college. And I'll tell you, it was in Nashville where uh, I went to Vanderbilt that so much of you know my life mission became clear. You know, my conversion had really begun in high school. I'd raised, very much been raised in the faith, had great parents that sent me to Catholic school and made sure that we always prayed before meals and went to Mass on Sundays, which in today's world is kind of a rarity. Uh, growing up, maybe a little bit more normal, but, you know, in the world that we live in right now, I would say 
any kid who's going to mass consistently on Sundays, it's a bit of a miracle. Amen. And so I have a lot of gratitude, a gratitude in my heart for just that foundation in faith and virtue. But it really took going to college, being challenged by many of my evangelical and atheist friends for the faith to really sink deeply into my heart and become, in many ways, the the, the, the sum total of my uh, existence. I mean, when I really started to fall in love with Christ, particularly through the sacraments, everything about my life changed. And as you mentioned in the introduction, there was a zeal, a, a love for God and really a zeal and love for souls that I couldn't contain. And that led me to discern the priesthood. I went to seminary and discerned out, uh, began this like 10 or 12 year stretch of missionary work all over the world. COVID shut the world down, which meant it really shut a lot of the, that work down as well. And then could have never, ever imagined uh, working in Catholic education full time. And these last three years have been uh, just one uh, surprise after another where God has brought joy that I never thought possible um, and a great work of evangelization here on this campus in Tampa uh, that I never thought uh, the Lord could could do in a school setting. Um, mm-hmm. So working in campus ministry now full time, still traveling and speaking and even you know writing uh, this first book of mine uh, is a huge joy and a huge privilege, but there's nothing like accompanying these young men day in and day out here at Jesuit High School in Tampa. And I can certainly share more about that, but wow, I, I couldn't be more grateful to God that the mission has now really planted me here in, in Tampa. Uh, it's been more joy than I, I really know what to do with most days. Yeah, and we're going to talk about your book, Let Beauty Speak, in just a few minutes. Uh, an amazing read. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I'm interested in, when you were at Vanderbilt, you basically developed uh, a friendship across the spectrum, especially from among some evangelicals and others. What are some influences that they had on you that you brought back into your Catholic faith and let it explode within within the church? The first thing that really occurs to me as you ask that question is their personal love for Jesus Christ. I, I had certainly come to know the Lord and and to love him in a way that kept me uh, going to Mass on Sundays and in saying my prayers before I went to bed at night. But Jesus wasn't the sum total of my heart's affection. He wasn't the the thing that captivated my mind's attention uh, day in and day out. I learned that in many ways through my evangelical friends because they're, you know, being in relationship with Jesus Christ is everything to them. You know, in a way, there's almost a childlike focus uh, in their faith that I really didn't have in mind. Um, and I will say that uh, I got into plenty of debates with my evangelical friends because I, I stubbornly uh, remained Catholic, uh, really by the grace of God, all throughout college, never stopped going to Mass. But they are the ones who really helped me see that uh, a relationship with Christ was really the, the very essence of what it means to be a Christian and even what it means to be a Catholic, of course, but also their love for Scripture. To this day, I I spend anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes reading the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, journaling with the Word of God next to me. And again, I I didn't learn that uh, growing up from my my Catholic family or from uh, my Catholic schools. I really learned that and began to love that because of my evangelical friends. So I'm grateful. I'm very grateful. Yeah, it's interesting how... uh certain parts of of christianity that that have certain emphases can kind of help us bring a better balance uh to our catholicity 
I think especially the evangelical world has really helped Catholics to come back to a love and embrace of scriptures for Bible study. And also <clears throat> that that idea of a personal relationship with Jesus, uh, which to uh, the evangelical world is the fundamental foundation upon which everything is built. And of course, we could go into, you know, baptism and sacramental theology and all that at that point, but they do have that love, that central uh, desire to just have that personal relationship, which is which is really a part of our Catholic faith as well. Exactly. And that really came to light my senior year of college when I went up to Washington, D.C. and eventually New York City to see Pope Benedict XVI. He was on his first and I think only American pilgrimage, uh, apostolic tour, whatever you want to call it. He had his birthday at the White House with then President uh, Bush. I remember the images of that day uh, just sort of seared uh, forever. I just felt so at home having the Holy Father in our country. Yeah. But I decided to go and see as much of him in person as possible. And at the closing of the youth rally in, in New York City, actually at the, the seminary there in Dunwoody, he said something that I'll never forget. You know, this is only so many minutes after he's come out of a helicopter and and descended onto this stage that he was uh, very ironically sharing with the likes of Kelly Clarkson and many other kind of American pop stars that really did make no sense at all uh, to, to be at the event. But it was a great day leading up to the Pope's arrival. But what he said is what none of us will ever forget. He said, there is nothing. This was sort of the climax of his talk that day to 50,000 young people and seminarians. He said, there is nothing more important than developing your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And as soon as I yeah. heard that, it, it, it awoke something in my heart that everything I had been hearing from my evangelical friends was not only true for me as a Catholic, it was a truth coming from the very successor of St. Peter at right. a time that I really needed to be confirmed in that reality. And it, it was literally a few months later I decided to go to seminary. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I was on the, in the press corps for his visit, both there in Washington and New York. We should have looked each other up uh, among the, the millions of people that were there. Anyway, you know, <laughs> one of the things that we mentioned uh, in the early part is that you established something called Love Good Ministries. Can you tell us what that is? You know, it's funny. It began in 2013. We, we were then calling it Love Good Music. And the idea was to bring uh, artists, musicians, singer-songwriters together around this vision of evangelization through beauty. And many of them were writing music in the same way that Tolkien write the, wrote The Lord of the Rings. So it wasn't that they were doing liturgical music, Christian music. Uh, they were essentially doing secular music imbued or even infused with the gospel. Right. And these were Catholics uh, in country music, pop, jazz, folk, rock. It didn't seem to matter. They had this real call to bring um, beauty to the forefront of their craft and then to just do their part almost in the work of pre-evangelization to invite people to think a little bit more deeply about life through their poetic lyricism, through the beauty of their melodies. And so what began as Love Good Music eventually became Love Good Culture, uh, where we expanded really beyond music into art, books, um, coffee. And then it was only a few years after that, Love Good Academy was born, which is really the the, the culmination of, of 10 years of, of Love Good evangelizing through beauty. Uh, now it's primarily a formation platform. 
So our, our patrons, our subscribers um, have access to these incredible online courses, uh, books before they're released anywhere else, uh, as well as coffee and, and vinyl records. We're still doing all the things we've always done, but now in a much more focused way, uh, which is to form the everyday Catholic in sort of a Catholic imagination that can go about the increasingly post-Christian world that we live in and actually find ways to engage and redeem it through beauty in a way that, uh, at least for now, truth and goodness uh, are hard to employ. You know, beauty knows no enemy and is often the best entry point uh, in a culture of noise, in a culture of relativism. And we all know that once beauty has pierced the heart, truth and goodness are right there with it. And uh, it's a wonderful way, I think, uh, especially with young people who are so hungry for beauty, who are so hungry for meaning in their lives. Uh, it's a wonderful and very effective way to to evangelize in these times. We, we're going to get into that a little bit more in the uh, Let Beauty Speak part, but that that is amazing. And we also, at the end of the program, want to be sure that people can find out how to get a hold of uh, Love Good on the, on the net and find all of these different resources that are available to you. Um, I want to dig in, first of all, to your ministry, uh, both on the road, but also at uh, Jesuit Tampa. Uh, you were on the road for 12 years, and I know in many different kinds of settings. Uh, from what I gathered, most of it was with young people, young adults, and, and high school. Uh, what What is one key takeaway that you have uh, regarding where young people are today from, from all of that experience? Do you have like a, a key thing that kind of keeps you moving forward and ministering to that age group? I almost hinted at it a moment ago, but it's their hunger for meaning. It's their openness to faith. I really do believe that we're living in a post-Christian culture, which is to say a culture that once was Christian, right? Uh, we've, we've got something of the, the, the semblance of Christian values uh, barely being hung on to in our culture right now. Uh, but very few people, even who are living with Christian values, truly know Christ. Right. And so what I find so interesting, a Christian culture implies that Christ is the integrating principle of that culture. Um, because so many young people today have never heard the gospel, have never really even been introduced or given an opportunity to encounter Christ, uh, their openness to it is amazing. And I saw that 10 or 15 years ago when I was first getting started in this work. I see it more clearly now than ever before. And it's largely because uh, the world that we live in right now has failed this generation. They have told them that all they have to do is get on their phones and be a part of all the right social media platforms, and they will feel connected. They will feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Well, that's a lie. We all know that a screen will never be enough to connect us in the way that our heart most longs for, which is to Christ and to community built around Christ and his church. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about a quote from Cardinal Seurat right now. This is right after the burning of Notre Dame in 2019. He said, Christians must gather around their cathedrals. Like never before, he says, the world that we live in is, is lonely. The world that we live in right now is full of fear and anxiety. And the very answer, the very remedy to that fear, loneliness, and anxiety is Christ and his church. And so young people, in my experience, are open to that because they've been disappointed by the world and the culture and so they're really willing to give Christ and his church a chance. They're willing to, to gamble on the gospel in large part because they've never heard it before. And so there's nothing to lose. There's no, uh, you know, 
wounds from the church. There's often very little pushback. They don't have any reason to uh, even hesitate. Um, and when you really uh, invite them into the fullness of our faith, there's something in them that says, yes, this is what I'm made for. And the generosity, the openness, and the trust of young people is what really keeps me uh, working in and amongst them. It's a real privilege. It's interesting that one of the things that I keep hearing from a lot of young people, especially those kind of looking toward the church, is the whole idea of authenticity, which I think is another way of dealing with with the issue of having meaning. They They want Christianity, but they want authentic Christianity. They don't want just the fluff and the meringue off the top of the pie kind of a thing. Is that, is that kind of what, what you found as well? I just finished a unit with many of my seniors that I teach a theology class to every day. And the unit was called the cost of discipleship. And the very last thing we did was look at the witness and actually a little uh, video clip of the martyrdom of St. Jose Sanchez del Rio who is obviously, wow. you know, this amazing Mexican martyr and saint, only a hundred years ago died for his faith. And with a smile on his face, tears dripping and blood everywhere, right before he's killed, he says, Viva Cristo Rey. Right. And you see a young man in that moment who has weighed the cost of discipleship. He's weighed the cost of following Christ. And he said, I'm willing to take it to the extreme. And with that willingness, with that surrender to Christ, you see, obviously, the joy, even in his martyrdom, uh, there was so much joy. So I think that's exactly as you described it. There's an authenticity. Uh, there's even an intensity there that certainly young men, and I would say young people in general, really respond well to. They don't want watered down Catholicism. They don't want compromised doctrine. They would rather reject the faith than be sold sort of a, a compromised version of it. And I, I love that about this generation, their their love um, for authenticity and their desire for things to be real um, is, again, part of, I think, the opportunity the church has right now. When you went off the road, you were given this amazing opportunity to become the uh, campus minister at a high school where you had gone regularly to minister before, as I remember from, uh, from reading uh, an article about Tampa, uh, about Jesuit Tampa, uh, in uh, I guess it's uh, Catholic News Agency uh, did a beautiful article on you all. And uh, what was your greatest adjustment when you became a campus minister? Waking up every day at the same time, in the same bed, doing the same thing almost every day. <laughs> I mean, it was such a change from the missionary life, the itinerant life, uh, even the entrepreneurial life that I had been living for 10 years. So on a personal level, that was the biggest adjustment, was just dealing with some of the, we'll say the grind, even the tediousness of working in a school. I think students, faculty, staff, administration, we all feel that to a certain extent. Monday through Friday, every day looks and feels kind of similar. Now, there's a caveat there because of my role and, and really because of the intensity of the school no two days feel the same. And that was part of the adjustment that I had to uh, really um, deal with as well, which is, you know, I didn't have a lot of control over my schedule anymore. Right. You know, a large <laughs> part of my life is, is dictated by the school calendar. Yeah. And I found in, in obedience to the calendar, in obedience to even just the way we do things around here, the culture of the school, learning to 
So to really not only know it, but love it and, and love living in it, uh, there has been endless fruits. In other words, in accepting kind of the intensity and the discipline and the bell ringing of, of a school like this, um, I've learned that there is still a lot of room for the Holy Spirit to, to work miracles. I would actually argue now there's more room for the Holy Spirit to work miracles because, especially in our case, the institutional culture is so Christ-centered. You know, this is a school where Jesus is truly on the throne. I'm looking out my office window right now at this beautiful Romanesque church. We call it a chapel, but it's a basilica. It's practically a basilica that we picked up out of Rome and plopped down in the middle of our campus here in Tampa. And there's no doubt in anybody's mind that Christ is on the throne of this school mm-hmm. and he's on the throne of the hearts of all the people who run this school. And it makes it really easy to preach the gospel and to invite young men into discipleship with Christ when that's the institutional culture that you wake up in every day. Even though it's intense, even though it's rigorous, uh, there's a a gravitas even in uh, the faith that makes it very easy for these young men to take it seriously and to go all the way with it. I would think that one of the the big blessings of of your role now is that in a sense— um, missionary life could almost be search and destroy. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're, you're in and then you're gone. Uh, but uh, now you're in a, a situation where you get to grow with those young men and women that you're ministering to. You see them as they go from freshman, sophomore, through their schooling, uh, but also through their spiritual formation as well. Talk a little bit about that. That is by far the greatest joy of working in a school and working in campus ministry at a school like this. For example, many of the seniors that are now in major leadership on campus, I knew when they were freshmen and had the privilege of really investing in them. You know, for some reason, the Lord made it very clear who a lot of these leaders were going to be uh, all the way back when they were simply uh, 14-year-old freshmen walking in the door and not knowing anybody. And back in that day, wearing masks and clueless about everything. Okay, so one of the guys that I've seen tremendous growth in, just total transformation, uh, was actually featured in that article that you referenced from the Catholic News Agency. It's a young man named named Diego, and he's yep. a senior. He's the president of uh, Peer Ministry, which means he really has the most significant spiritual mm-hmm. leadership role in the senior class. But coming in as a freshman, he was sort of thinking he was probably more of an atheist or an agnostic than a Catholic and had this beautiful conversion that took place over the first few weeks of his freshman year, largely through his friends, largely through beautiful all school masses, although after school walking rosary that we had started that year. And now he's not only the president of peer ministry, he's a daily communicant. Uh, He spends, I would imagine a solid half an hour in prayer almost every day on top of daily mass, which is an unusual thing for a 17 year old senior in high school. And even today at lunch, we were chatting about just his desire to do great things for the Lord and to have been in the trenches uh, with Diego these last three years, to have been shoulder to shoulder with him at many of those key moments or thresholds of conversion. uh, It's been a a true joy, very different from the itinerant work where you you come in, as you said, uh, search and rescue, search and destroy, call it what you want, but you might never see them again. Whereas around here, you get to the end of a powerful retreat and it's like, all right, Diego, I'll I'll see you Monday. I'll probably see you tomorrow, actually. Uh, That's a huge joy. 
yeah. to get to really accompany these guys over a long period of time. Yeah, it's interesting too that this uh, really does speak of of uh, what the uh, uh, Catholic news agency described as the culture of conversion there at at Georgia uh, at Tampa. In fact, uh, in the article it says that since 2010, a total of 104 students have been baptized and received into the church at Jesuit. 57 of those were during the last three school years alone. 33 of those converts uh, are current students on campus. And this is as of last month when this was written, I'm assuming. Um, this, I, I'm sure there are a lot of our educators that are listening that go, man, that's the kind of school I want to be here. Uh, what does that look like on a daily basis? I mean, uh, is everybody just walking around levitated, w- carrying Bibles under their arms? What, <laughs> what, what does this look like? Yeah, it's funny you ask that question because today during lunch, I walked into the cafeteria and I thought to myself, anybody who has read that article and just happens to stumble into our cafeteria right now would not be able to identify a single contributing (laughs) factor to that culture of conversion, right? I mean, we're just a very typical all boys Catholic high school. What, What I mean by that is most of these young men they're coming here because they want to play sports in college. They want to be professional athletes one day. Maybe they want to get a great education, but that's largely the academic side of things for the sake of maybe a full-ride scholarship to the college of their dreams. In other words, because we're such a great school academically and athletically, and the reputation in this town is top-notch, most guys who live anywhere near Tampa Bay at least apply to Jesuit in their eighth grade year. If they're even remotely high achieving or ambitious, this is a great place uh, to apply and to consider going. Now, what very few people realize is that when they step in the door all the way back to their eighth grade orientation, coming into their freshman year, their their welcome day in orientation where they're just barely students here, 14-year-olds experiencing it all for the first time, you know, one of their very first impressions is our chapel, which again is beautiful. Uh, There's images of it all over, you know, the the internet. And people often come to Jesuit just to see the beauty of this chapel, the the four side altars with pretty Mm -hmm. gruesome martyrdom scenes of some of the great Jesuits like Blessed Miguel Pro or St. Isaac Mm -hmm. Jogues, whose feast day we just celebrated last week. So there's an immediate sort of immersion into the beauty of our faith, the intensity of our faith. And that begins almost a, a slow drip in the hearts of so many of our freshmen and even sophomores as they begin to then take, you know, theology every single day, five days a week. And our teachers are all, you know, former seminarians or graduates from any of the Newman God colleges. I mean, solid, orthodox, evangelical Catholics teaching our theology classes. They all go on a retreat at least once a year, many of them more than that. Uh, But I would say it's just the beauty of day-to-day campus life that begins to really work on the hearts of these young men and bring about that conversion. And I would say it's not always something you can perceive with the eyes. You know, there's moments like coming in for an all-school mass or being around as a group of 15 or 20 guys prays a walking rosary after school every day. Maybe if you came in during lunch and you'd see 15, 20 guys in campus ministry having what we call discipleship, which is really intentional conversation about faith, about virtue, purity, chastity, prayer, all the things that they're struggling with. 
um, there's a lot of those moments that you could step into and realize, okay, yeah, there's something different about this place. You know, even our European pilgrimages, we take a hundred guys to Europe every summer on pilgrimage. We have mission trips all over the world. But I would argue that most of the Lord's most profound work on this campus happens in the most ordinary of moments. It happens when a light bulb goes off in theology class, when a kid finally locks in for an all-school mass and doesn't just, you know, check out, but really engages his heart and receives Holy Communion for the first time in a way that really mattered to him Mm -hmm. or makes the best confession of his life while he's on a retreat. It's these very hidden, very ordinary moments where I'm convinced God is doing his best work around here. And then that starts to multiply and it affects whole groups of friends and then entire grade levels and eventually the culture of the school. Archbishop Miller in the uh, his document, uh, The Five Marks of Catholic Schools, one of them is uh, developing community. That community is really at the heart. It sounds to me like uh, community and uh, true Christian friendship is kind of a seedbed for this kind of life to emerge. Would that be correct? Absolutely. And the word that we use around here, almost to a fault, is brotherhood. I mean, we're an all-boys school, so when we talk about community, we talk about it in that context. And the only reason I say we use the word brotherhood to a fault is because we we throw it around a lot. You know, we talk about the brotherhood or the camaraderie that you feel on a football team when you go through an entire intense season uh, and then make it all the way to the semifinals and lose. Or in the case of two years ago, make it to the state championship and win the brotherhood uh, that comes with joys and sorrows and everything in between can be easily understood by any of these guys in the context of sports, the classroom, uh, our, our theater and fine arts, but where many of them begin to realize that this idea of community as Archbishop Miller describes it, this idea of brotherhood as we understand it, it runs deeper. It aims higher. It's a brotherhood that is ultimately uh, storming heaven. It's a, it's a brotherhood that's rooted in Christ, as Aristotle puts it. It's, it's virtuous friendship that these young men begin to cultivate for the first time and then carry with them into the rest of their life. You know, quick story about one of our alum. He went off to college, thought about joining a fraternity. He kind of went down that path for a little while, only to eventually step away because he felt like the word brotherhood kept being thrown around so sh- with such shallowness, with such emptiness. Because of what he had experienced at Jesuit, he yeah. he could not settle for that kind of brotherhood. I put that you know in quotation marks in college, and I think it's because he's learned what virtuous friendship looks like and feels like. He'll never again settle for anything less, and that's what community is. It's it's a network of virtuous friends who are really in it together. And I think in a world that's increasingly lonely, in a world that's got you know, isolation on the rise. We all need to feel like we belong and and where better to find that profound sense of belonging than the church, especially as it's expressed in a school like this. When you're talking, all I can think about is that one scene from uh, Henry V, uh, the movie with uh, Kenneth Branagh. And he says, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. And uh, that that has to be, like you said, kind of a uh, a DNA that runs through all of the alums as they go on through life. They come back because uh, they want to be with some of those few happy few brothers that they had. Amen. It's funny you bring up Henry V. One of the songs that's most famous in that soundtrack is Non Nobis Domine. 
Yep. And we sing that probably once a month. Every other all school mass, we will sing that. We have our boys choir. We've got our chamber orchestra. You feel like you're literally in the movie as that song erupts at the end of mass or during communion. And I only share that because even those kinds of songs um, that we, you know, sacred songs that we sing in liturgy, the kinds of traditions that we have on our retreats. It's stuff that these young men talk about for the rest of their life. There's, there's nothing like seeing a hundred of our guys at World Youth Day and suddenly out of nowhere, they'll just start singing song two, song uh-huh. two. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've been singing it every other week for four years. It's the most normal thing for them to just sing it on the streets of Krakow or on the streets you know, of Lisbon. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to watch because that's brotherhood or community really at its best because you realize it's just an anticipation of heaven. The joy that we feel in living the faith with others is a is a taste of what's to come. It's it's heaven on earth. It's interesting when you brought up Non Nobis. Uh, when I was an Anglican bishop, we would sing that at the end of every ordination mass. <laughs> and yeah, and just hearing, a, a, you know, all of these priests and you know attendees all singing it together it's it's captivating you know patrick doyle did a great job on that song uh obviously powerful powerful yeah. now am i correct that uh, you have your own rcia program there at at uh at jesuit we do thanks be to god the, the local bishop here has given us permission to, to have an rcia program that runs through the school how does that integrate with local parishes in terms of students receiving uh, baptism, confirmation, and reception? Right. So we we definitely are not able to offer confirmation to young men who are already baptized Catholics. Uh, we obviously send them into the parishes. If they're already Catholic uh, and they haven't yet um, received all their sacraments, then we plug them in very actively, very intentionally. The parishes all over the city, based on where they live. But in the case of RCIA, we're obviously talking about students who, who are not Catholic, who are in some cases, you know, baptized as uh, Protestants under various denominations, um, but who regardless for saying, I, I want to be a part of the fullness of the faith. I want to be a Catholic. And so it's really pretty tremendous to watch these young men join RCIA at the beginning of the year. Uh, we always end up with twice as many interested as uh, actually go through with it. And last year is a good example. We had 15 young men. Of the 15, six were received into the church, meaning they had already been baptized as as Christians under a a Protestant denomination. But then they were received, uh, which is a beautiful moment when they stand up all together to to declare the apostles. Actually, I think it's the Nicene Creed out loud all together in front of the entire student body during an all-school mass. And then, of course, they go on to receive their first Holy Communion, but on the retreat that we've done for them the day before, they've been to confession. Um, The other nine guys this past year who were, of course, all baptized, they didn't have to go to confession, but they were um, baptized at that same all-school mass, of course, confirmed with the others who were received into the church and received their first Holy Communion. And, And the power of these converts on our campus cannot be underestimated. Their love for the Lord and for the church is palpable. You know, seeing many of them kneel to receive Holy Communion at that closing Mass, seeing many of them step up in peer ministry to lead retreats for the entirety of the next school year if they're going into their senior year. 
Uh, it's amazing. We, we, I would say as a campus minister, I depend on the zeal of our converts to even just do things at the level that we do them. But a big part of that process of helping them journey through our CIA, make the final commitment is about a month before their reception or baptism. Um, we have their pastors, their future pastors come in and have lunch with them. And then we, we plug them in to youth ministry, uh, to uh, any kind of parish ministry, actually, um, that is, you know, a part of the parish that they're going to plug into. Uh, in a way, it's 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 fuel uh, for the diocese. Mm-hmm. It's fuel for for parishes and especially youth ministers who are really trying to engage young people at the parish. So we, we take that very seriously. You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things you alluded to just a bit ago is that there really is a culture of discipleship that's embedded within the culture of conversion. What what does that look like? That is such a good question, Father. Yes, I mean, the culture of conversion began in many ways three years ago during COVID. I mean, we had always actually had three to five, sometimes as many as eight or nine converts per school year. But 2020, 2021 was obviously a difficult and strange school year for many of us. And that's the year that we had 22 students convert. And it really struck all of us, you know, just the beauty of it. Uh, and the implications of it. And many of those guys, about half of those 22 converts were actually freshmen at the time, now seniors. So they've been kind of carrying that culture with them ever since. What I have also found that between, you know, the the three of us who work full-time in campus ministry with the students, and now a brand new program called Mission Corps, which is three guys right out of college who come alongside our efforts really as missionaries. The, the six of us are out on this campus, day in and day out, accompanying students in their discipleship with Christ. In a lot of ways, that that's what makes the difference. You know, it's not enough to just pass on the doctrines of our faith. It's not even enough to just have beautiful liturgies. Um, there's got to be some level of, of, of mentorship and accompaniment um, by people who are just a little further along in their own discipleship with Christ. And thanks be to God, um, that culture of discipleship has grown. I would say that's been harder to grow because it's a slower process. Right. Um, But it entails really this this one-to-one dynamic multiplied over many, many dozens of students that eventually creates a web of discipleship where now I've got seniors, even some juniors who are mentoring, you might even say discipling underclassmen and only taking that culture of discipleship to a whole nother level. Yeah. And really, discipleship is has to be more than a program. You know, I, I, I think of uh, Luke 640, where Jesus said, a disciple, when he is fully taught, will be like his teacher. And you just can't get that from, from filling in the blanks of a workbook. That's right. And there are a lot of programs out there right now. There's curriculums, even for things like discipleship. And, you know, I'm really happy to see that there's a desire for that across the church. I'm really happy to see that there's resources that can aid people in that yeah, work absolutely. of discipleship, but nothing can replace the work itself. It has to be rolling up our sleeves and investing in people and doing what the Lord did with his own 12, um, which obviously was a very uh, intensive, beautiful thing that changed the world. Yeah, I that's where I love the word accompaniment that seems to be very natural in the church today. And I agree, we have some phenomenal programs, and those really do provide some foundational 
truths that need to be lived out. But boy, it's about just living it out. Um, and, uh, you know, as uh, one of the old campfire songs used to go, with one hand, reach out to Jesus, with another, bring a friend, you know, and uh, that's that's it. what it's all about. Now, you know, in this culture of conversion, I know that as we've talked about this, there's probably a lot of uh, teachers, administrators that go, boy, this is what I really would like to see happen at, at my school. How do you start? I mean, you know, there, that's I know the there, question. Yes. Yeah. What do you do to begin this? Because it's going to take a long time to develop. But what, how would you begin? So our president began 15 years ago in his current role. He's an amazing, amazing Jesuit priest, uh, totally on fire and just a great lover of God and a lover of the church. And so, you know, he can answer this question with a lot more perspective than I could. But by observation, I can see over the, the first 10 or 12 years of his presidency here at the school, he just started to make little changes, right? So hiring for mission, getting the right people in leadership, um, and, you know, quietly uh, uh, inviting people into conversion if they were not on board. And if they didn't get on board, you know, politely asking them to leave. And I think what we've seen is eventually you create the kind of culture where people opt out. If they realize, oh yeah, this is this is taking it a little bit too far. You know, this is a Catholic school that's taken the Lord at his word and the church by her teachings. And some people, you know, in a good way, they opt out of that. And then you're able to, again, you know, hire uh, fresh faces who really do love the mission and are aligned with it and, and, and willing to fight for it. So, you know, we've all heard this phrase a million times, right? But, but personnel is policy. It's all about people, people, people. Yeah. In fact, when I was in Nashville thinking about a career, not in education or even a call to evangelization, initially I got to Nashville thinking music business. I wanted to be a record producer. I wanted to be working at some record label or tour management company. And the guy who literally found and signed Garth Brooks, one of the most successful A&R representatives in the history of music, taught me one class, one semester. And he said, never forget this, Jimmy, that even the music industry, it's all about three R's, relationships, relationships, relationships. And I believe that that is so true yeah. of a school. It's all about the right people being in relationship with one another, rooted in Christ, serving the mission. Uh, but other things began to happen. You know, uh, Father Hermes raised the money to, to build this new chapel. That's been a game changer. We start every single day with a time of prayer and formation in a chapel that feels like it belongs in Europe. That does a lot to a young man's heart, just to yeah. lift his gaze up, away from his phone, away from the just shackles of life into the freedom that we can only have in Christ. Uh, our mm -hmm. retreat program was majorly invested in at a certain point as well. There's now seven of us working full-time in campus ministry. Even when I got here, there was only three of us. So that was three years ago. So part of this is, you know, allocating uh, resources uh, and funds in a way that fuels the mission of a school, getting the right people in the right place, and then helping them grow what they're doing. And campus ministry kind of has endless possibilities. You know, when you think about uh, a retreat program, immersion experiences in the summertime, uh, discipleship groups during the school year, endless possibilities. I think the danger is to get paralyzed and to see a school like Jesuit and to think, ah, we we can't even touch that. Like that that is so far off of a possibility 
uh, you just don't even try. But I think what Father Hermes always says, and this is so wise, just start somewhere. Pick one of those things and run with it for a few years. And then once you've got that in a good place, move on to the next thing, whether it's transforming a theology department, transforming campus ministry, transforming the liturgical life, transforming mission trips, pilgrimages, community service, all of those things, you know, one at a time. And the next thing you know, 15 years later, you have a school Mm -hmm. like this. And we're really just trying our hardest to not take it for granted, to not rest on our laurels, to stay hungry, to realize that the Lord is just getting started with this mission here in Tampa. And then all of us, uh, we can't get comfortable. We have to continue to ask the Lord, what is the next great thing we can do for your glory and for the salvation of these young men here at Jesuit? That's our posture, and we hope to keep it that way. Yeah, it's it's like that scripture, um, don't despise the day of small beginnings. We, you know, I mm-hmm. love that idea. Just pick something and start doing it. And, uh, uh, you know, I think also just the amount of, of focus, focus that you have there on seven campus ministers says a lot uh, about the, uh, the priority of campus ministry there at Jesuit. Okay, we got to shift here uh, and, and talk about your book, uh, because this, this book is fantastic. It, yeah, there, I've got it up higher. Uh, <laughs> I just got it Monday, so I really haven't had a chance to go deep into it. But what I'm reading is is just really super. Uh, Let beauty speak, and I I love the subtitle too: the art of being human in a culture of noise. That that just says so much, and and this is going to stay on my reading table till I I devour it. Um, and I you know I know that the book is a result of a lot of study, a lot of prayer, and a lot of presentations uh, over the years that you've made. Now, about a year and a half ago, I interviewed Margarita Mooney Clayton of Princeton Seminary and the head of the Scala Foundation, and she has a book called The Wounds of Beauty. She has the very same passion for beauty that you do as kind of the theme of her of her apostolate. And I'm going to ask you the same question I asked her, and that was, why write a book on beauty when individual and societal upheaval are threatened? Hmm. That's a great question. And I think part of what I have developed sort of instinctually over time is this philosophy uh, that beauty can break through all of the noise. Uh, It it can pierce people's hearts right in the midst of brokenness, tragedy, destruction, war, uh, emptiness, you name it, whatever social or cultural or personal ill comes to mind, beauty sometimes in a dangerous way, it can even bypass the intellect. And I think as implied in this other book titled uh, The Wounds of Beauty, um, it can bring healing. Uh, It can bring hope. You know, I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes from St. John Paul II. He says, the human heart needs beauty lest it sink into despair. Right. So beauty, properly understood, is always an encounter with Christ. It's always a foretaste of heaven. It's always meant to remind us what it really means to be human. And so I can't think of anything more powerful. And obviously, we could talk all day about the beauty of music and art, music and, and, and architecture, uh, you name it. I'm a busy guy. But at the end of the day, it's the beauty of holiness. It's the beauty of the saints uh, that most captivates and really transforms the world. Do you have a working definition of beauty? Well, uh, that which pleases upon being seen would be one of the more ancient 
kind of right. philosophical definitions. Um, you know, one of my uh, all-time favorites is actually from from Cardinal Cantalamesa. Uh, he used to describe uh, beauty as as anything um, that is sort of uh, touched by God. I'm actually going to have to paraphrase it because I'm I'm losing it in this moment. He said that beauty is is an encounter with with anything um, divine, right? And really, one of my other favorite definitions of beauty um, is actually only understood by the word glory. Okay, so glory being yeah. this kind of taste of what's to come. You know, uh, even Thomas Aquinas talks about grace in the soul being a pledge of future glory. Um, well, glory is divine beauty. You know, glory is the beatific vision. It's the beauty of God, like, you know, what Peter, James, and John experienced at the transfiguration. Well, we don't have to wait for heaven to experience some of that glory, some of that divine beauty. In fact, if if we wait too long, uh, our, our hearts will shrink or our faith will just become a merely intellectual enterprise. I think faith has a way of, of really being expressed and, and understood through beauty. Um, in a way that's you know hard to put into words, but I think deeply intuitive to all of us. It's interesting that that we're focusing on beauty because I'll, I think there has been I think in recent decades, especially a movement within Christianity to basically almost rid the church of beauty, and especially architecturally, um, and it, where we're just we're we're turning it into more of a, a an event facility more than it is a place of worship uh in some uh especially in the protestant world there are some where the crosses are removed and other things are just made more utilitarian and it's interesting that that with all of that happening there does seem to be something within the human heart that's drawing people back to worship that is more beauty driven in terms of architecture, music, everything. Yes, because I think beauty invites reverence. And there's something in us that longs to feel small before the greatness of God. You know, I'm thinking back to, you know, my first time um, ever in adoration as a 14-year-old in the North Georgia mountains. Some combination of being with 30 of my best friends on a retreat, staring at the stars at night, but then for the first time beholding the glory of God in the Eucharist, made me feel small. It, it, it actually helped me realize for the first time that I wasn't God. And that was really refreshing. Uh, there was actually something liberating about that moment because uh, all I really needed to do then was, was surrender to his beauty, to his power, to his goodness, to his mercy. Uh, and then you just buckle up because the, the, the ride from that point on, it, it, it's wild. I mean, as JP2 puts it, life with Christ is a wonderful adventure. Well, beauty makes it not so scary to hop on that adventure and has a way of kind of inviting us into humility, inviting us into reverence and making it much easier to worship God as God and to not ever let our ego get in the way. Now, one of the things that you have, again, in the subtitle is uh, the art of being human in a culture of noise uh, as kind of a context for talking about beauty. Uh Tell us a little bit about the culture of noise. What what is that that we're experiencing? You know, uh, Pope Benedict obviously coined uh, very famously uh, the, the dictatorship of relativism. Right. And um, not long after that, um, maybe five, 
10 years later, you get Cardinal Seurat talking about the dictatorship of noise. And that's in a book that you know he wrote on silence. Right. And so I've been thinking about a lot of the, we'll just say contributing factors to our post-Christian culture for a long time, relativism, noise, uh, isolation. Um, that list goes on. Um, but I I really had to, to hone in on the very thing that most shackles are you know, our church, certainly our young people in today's culture, it's noise, you know, it's, it's so pervasive. So, you know, the average American checks their phone once every 10 minutes right now, that's close to a hundred times a day. We're just distracted by a screen. That's to say nothing of, you know, um, the two hours a day the average American spends on social media alone. That's to say nothing of YouTube or Netflix or even, Cable television, I don't even know who has cable anymore, right? But we are streaming ourselves to death, scrolling ourselves to death, and wondering why this existential ache in our heart just continues to grow. Because ultimately, it's it's God and God alone who can satisfy the deepest desires of the heart. So I think this culture of noise is doing everything it can to distract us from that truth. Um, I'll throw out one last really interesting statistic uh, or fact. The average American right now scrolls with their phone, with their thumb on their phone to the top of Mount Everest and back every single year, right? So what does it look like for us to step away from the screens, you know, to look up again, to look up at the stars, to look up at the author of creation, the one that is the source of all that is true and good and beautiful, uh, and to just ponder life and its mysteries to to contemplate yet again. I mean, just yesterday, I live in Florida, so I'm spoiled, right? But just yesterday on the way home from work, I actually went to a beach just to catch the sunset. And it was half an hour to an hour without my phone, just taking in the breeze and the beauty of the moment. Well, there's something in that that made me feel very human and very alive. And uh, most of the day, you know, I'm running around and I'm feeling kind of busy and feeling a little bit crazy, even at a school like Jesuit. Beauty reminds me uh, that I've got to slow down, that the noise uh, can be, you know, really um, tempered, if, if not quieted entirely, at least in my interior. Uh, and, and beauty has always been the easiest way to that place of silence, to that place of stillness. It's interesting, as you were making that analogy uh, with Mount Everest, I was trying to find that in your introduction. <laughs> in there your you book. go. Because <laughs> I had read that and I thought, well, we got to go and talk about that because that's exactly where we are. You know, I saw a video the other day that uh, as I was reading your book and watching this video, it was such a stark representation in kind of an extreme way. And that was, it was a, a, a video of uh, a young man who was just basically making a declaration of uh, pro-life and he was out on a street and he was just basically preaching. He wasn't angry preaching. He was just speaking about pro-life. And uh, this woman approaches him objecting to what he had to say. And what she did in did, she did not encounter him in terms of a dialogue, but rather she started to scream at the top of her lungs and she screamed as long as she could, stopped, took a breath, and screamed again, took a breath, kept screaming, I think, until she ran out of voice. But I think that's the other thing about the culture of noise is that 
noise is there almost intentionally to keep us from seeing truth, seeing beauty. Would that be mm-hmm. fair? I think so. I mean, what you just described sounds like the very shrieks and cries of agony from hell. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, what could possibly be more uh, full of noise and full of despair than obviously the pits of hell? And it's really only in the stillness, in the silence, even in the solitude that we can come to know God. I mean, the Holy Spirit as the sweet guest of the soul. I mean, that's a phrase that we hardly even use in our kind of modern Catholic context. But that was a classic understanding of God, the Holy Spirit, as consoler, as sanctifier, as the sweet guest of the soul. So what we're talking about is a spirit of recollection, right. a spirit of, of of constant awareness that God is in us, that God is around us, that God is actually in the very person that we seem to like the least right now. Uh, and as soon as we can recognize Christ in that person, Christ in the moments that are actually most difficult, suddenly uh, we're we're untouchable. We begin to live with a certain fearlessness mm-hmm. and obviously a joy that the world can't touch. Now, in the book, you, you basically focus on 10 principles uh, in talking about beauty. You've got wonder, freedom, friendship, prayer, leisure, work, etc., um, how did you arrive at these 10 themes and and how do they emerge in terms of being a support for the issue of beauty? That's right. I mean, it was a long time coming, Father Randy. In some ways, I've been writing this book for 10 years because I've been thinking about these principles for at least 10 years. And it was while hosting uh, uh, an apprenticeship program, it was basically a year long formation program for young adults who were living in Nashville, who were looking for kind of ongoing formation as young adult Catholics, who were also plugged in to various careers. They were living in community, but doing all these great things across the city of Nashville. Is When we started providing, me and some friends and some priests in the area, we started providing regular formation for them that this, uh, I don't know if curriculum is the right word, but certainly this structure of, of principles really was, was um, given birth. And so um, wonder, freedom, friendship, all the way to culture, um, they, they build off of each other. Each principle um, is building off of the one before it. So when you talk about beauty, you actually can't even begin that conversation until you understand wonder, w- what it means to, to live with that childlike awe, that childlike receptivity to every moment, uh, to live in that spirit of, of wonder that even you know, Dominicans describe as the foundation for knowledge. Wonder leads to knowledge and ultimately knowledge to love. Well, then uh, once you've cultivated, again, that that wonder in your heart, you can begin to recognize beauty when you encounter it. And freedom is the very thing that gives rise to to beauty in the soul, a well-ordered, virtuous soul, right? With interior freedom, um, it can't help but point to Christ. And, you know, from friendship and prayer all the way, to some of the more difficult principles like suffering, yeah. um, there's certainly in my experience been, you know, no way to understand what it means to be human without at least some understanding of each of these principles. And when they are lived well, when, for example, we suffer well because we unite it with Christ and we recognize that there's redemptive power here, there's redemptive power that we can tap into and that we can bring forth with the Lord suddenly our lives do become something beautiful. And that's the whole point is that 
um, what I saw intuitively in artists and musicians and singer songwriters who again reminded me so much of Tolkien and the way that he wrote Lord of the Rings. Now with the help of these principles, all of us can live ourselves, which is to bring beauty to the forefront of our lives, to let everything that we say and do all the way to the deepest parts of our soul, allow God to orchestrate a masterpiece for everything that we are and say and do to become sort of the, the very, um, you know, means by which God evangelizes the world, even when we're not saying the name of Christ, our lives can be uh, a living witness, a work of evangelization. And that's, again, what this is meant to cultivate is is a desire to live in such a way that we can't help but evangelize the people around us. One of the things that I like, and I think it speaks to this point, is that each chapter, of course, it has recommendations for further reading. And I would just suggest to people that if they're reading this book, I mean, if if they could just read the bibliography, the, the, the readings that you suggest, they have a lifetime of great, great books to read. But I love the getting practical. They're easy ways to engage in what you're talking about in the chapter. Uh, where we go just beyond reading about beauty to to actually experiencing it. Uh, was this kind of, again, something that you you knew from the very beginning had to be incorporated into the book? It's funny you ask that because it was my my dad who really pushed me hard in the early manuscripts of this book to make sure that I got practical. You know, I think because there's enough of an artist and a musician in me, I can live in the world of the ethereal all day. I I can just kind of go pie in the sky, life in the clouds and love it up there. But at a certain point, you know, God really did take on human flesh. At a certain point, our faith has to be concretized in our lives. And that's really what this book is meant to uh, encourage and, and challenge people with. Uh, is to let these principles not just be wonderful sources of of conversation and even inspiration, but that they would challenge us and convict us and help us to, again, get really practical in how we bring beauty to the forefront of our lives. So as an example, you know, the chapter that most people scratch their head on and wonder, why is that even in here, is obviously the whole principle on suffering. So, for example, one of the getting practical bullet points here at the end of the chapter Uh, goes like this. The next time you're confronted with some great trial or tragedy, immediately unite it with our Lord on the cross. In prayer, ask the Holy Spirit to help you find seeds of the resurrection amid the suffering. Okay, well, that's great next time something really huge and really tragic hits, but actually it's this next one that might be most helpful, which is a quote from St. John of Avila. And that's this bullet point. It says, say, blessed be God, Every time you're tempted to complain, accept even the smallest annoyances and most difficult circumstances of your day as a gift from the Lord. You know, and I think it's very, very easy to talk about suffering and it's very, very difficult to suffer well. And some of those practical points at the end of each chapter are really just there to help us connect the dots between our head, our heart, and ultimately our our hands and our lives. Well, that's that's really good. I love that that quote from Saint John. And uh, just before we began the podcast, I I had some water uh, get on my keyboard, and I should have said, "Blessed be God." It would have been a much <laughs> much better approach. Um, this is great. Now, in writing a book like this, in with all of the 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 great uh, 
content and and practices and everything. If you could envision what a person would look like after reading this book and going through some of the practical exercises, what would he or she be like? Obviously, it would depend on their state of life. Uh, but I'm thinking about, let's say, your average young adult who's not yet married, maybe uh, not you know, necessarily discerning a priestly or religious vocation, although a book like this might inspire that. Um, I would see them changing perhaps a lot of little things about their lifestyle. So, for example, committing to 15 minutes of prayer, mental prayer every single day, because Teresa of Avila says, if you don't do that, <laughs> if you don't converse with God like a friend, for at least 15 minutes a day, you won't need a devil to throw you into hell. You'll throw yourself in, she says. Feisty saint that she was, right? <laughs> um, that's a, a principle that obviously I spent a whole chapter developing, the importance of prayer and cultivating beauty deep down in the soul and finding the peace that your heart longs for anyways. It would also look like uh, that same young adult living in community with other like-minded Christians, ideally even Catholics, who could pray together themselves, who could live that principle of community, three or four of them all under the same roof, at least until they're in their vocations. I think it would look like people plugging in to uh, ministries in their local parish. And I'm not talking about, you know, um, becoming an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion or being elected at Mass. Those things are great. Okay, but the last thing that we want to do is clericalize the laity. <laughs> what we need to do is to teach the laity, those of us, you know, in the world, how to be apostles, you know, and maybe the way to learn that is plugging into youth ministry, uh, plugging into um, bereavement ministry, what ways to, to actually roll up your sleeves and serve people who are either, um, you know, literally or spiritually poor in some way. And then once you kind of get better at this whole idea of mission, of living your life on mission with the Lord, which is, again, one of the principles, then you can start to to test your, your yourself with with colleagues, with coworkers, with next door neighbors. You know, just a few days ago, I had a wonderful conversation with one of my next door neighbors. I I live in this wonderful little community, this little neighborhood of townhomes, and this is a, a, a captain of a tugboat, maybe maybe in his late twenties. And next thing I know, over the course of this conversation, because he finds out the work that I do at Jesuit. He's going on and on about how he grew up a Catholic, how he's not really been practicing the faith in a while. And uh, next thing I know, we're making plans to smoke cigars together. And when that happens, he tells me his whole life story. And next thing I know, he's coming to mass with me the following Sunday. Wow. You know, that's kind of what my hope is for all of us, that we would make the pursuit of holiness ordinary in a world that has normalized sin <laughs> and normalized, frankly, uh, noise and relativism and and misery i hate to say it you know but like sin leads to misery it leads to emptiness it's not hard to to process that equation you know you, you, you sin a lot you will never be happy you'll never feel free you'll never have a, a profound sense of of mission in your life something will always feel off but you begin to really strive for the virtues you begin to integrate work and leisure in your life, as I propose through a couple of the principles, as you as you learn to suffer well, you become more human, you become more like Christ, and ultimately you become a beacon of hope in the world. Without even saying it, without wearing it on your sleeve, without even having the Jesus bumper sticker, you can proclaim the gospel. And once you've mm -hmm. earned the right to be heard, then you can proclaim it. 
then you can invite people into the fullness of our faith that they so long for. Man, that is, that is so rich. Yeah. That, that your last sharing, I think really uh, is a culmination of, uh, of what this book really is all about is, is coming to a place of living uh, in a world that does exist still, but it's being kind of veiled by the mm-hmm. by the noise as as you say you know i would as you were talking i would recommend too probably to have couples like uh, married couples read it together so that they can kind of go through this uh it's almost like a pilgrimage together mm. through all of these different That's chapters cool. <clears throat> so i'm I'm just thinking That's that great. would be a, a great thing for for married couples to do and that way like at the end of the wonder chapter take the walk together and and th- there's so many ways that this can really really work. So anyway, uh, you just got my mind just churning with all kinds of ideas for <laughs> applying applying what we're talking about. Uh, Jimmy, it has been absolutely phenomenal to have you today on Follow to Lead. Again, you know we've got your book Let Beauty Speak. It's Ignatius Press available through a variety of book outlets, including online. I won't name the major online distributor, but I'm sure he has it. Um, but uh, you also are involved at uh, Jesuit Tampa and people can go there. Uh, how would they find out more about Love Good uh, and and all that's going on there? For sure. What, what I'd recommend is, especially if you're interested in the book, you can, you can direct folks to letbeautyspeak.com. Okay. And that'll also have links not only to uh, all the places you can buy the book, but also uh, has links to to Love Good and uh, to my personal social media if people want to stay in touch that way. And then if they're really interested in this bigger vision of evangelization through beauty, they can check out lovegoodacademy.com. Okay, very good. Hey, again, thanks so much. I, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. This has absolutely been fantastic. Thank you, Father Randy. Really appreciate it. It's been a privilege. And uh, for more information about the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative, uh, please visit our website at diaschools.org. And for those of you in our audience, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or uh, follow our podcast. And be sure to leave a comment to encourage us toward future programs. May Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.